Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg. I'm here to read you my Dvar Torah for Parshat Vayera. Its title is, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. Or is it? Just a word about the title before I read the Dvar Torah. This title, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, was a title of a musical celebration rooted in African-American and gospel music, which tells the story of the Gospel of Matthew. I never saw the production as I am not a fan of the book of Matthew. Although written by a Jew, the book contains some of the most damaging anti-Semitic texts, often invoked in the course of persecuting Jews. Nevertheless, from the moment I saw the title, it captured for me one of the major divergences between Jewish traditions and Christian assumptions about the magnitude of God reducing human standing the sense of human dignity, intimacy, and even equality in the relationship with God inside the covenant is established in this our Parsha. Over decades of interfaith dialogue, one presentation of Jewish religion always evoked a startled response when I told how humans would argue with God by the rules of the covenant, as shown by Abraham's behavior in this Parsha. To many dialogue participants, this seemed disrespectful, oblivious of the degree of difference between God's majesty and human insignificance. Now, true, there are Jewish texts that stress human unworthiness and insignificance in the presence of God. In both the daily morning service and high holy days liturgy, for example, we say, quote, What can we say in your presence, Lord, O God? All the heroes are as nothing before you the wise as if they were without knowledge. Most of their doings are worthless, all is vanity. Nevertheless, relative parity and free interchange is one of the fundamental implications of covenant. Here is Soloveitchik's admittedly modern reading. Quote, He, God, joins man and shares in his covenantal existence. The element of togetherness of God and man is indispensable for the covenantal community. The very validity of the covenant rests upon free negotiation, mutual assumption of duties, and full recognition of the equal rights of both parties. Soloveitchik adds that what flows from this is the paradoxical experience of freedom, reciprocity, and equality in one's personal confrontation with God. And interestingly enough, this is in The Lonely Man of Faith, page 44, but notice that he is a bit nervous at the parity between God and human, the covenant, which he has self-established. So he puts quotation marks around the word equality in one's personal confrontation with God. Out of this consciousness of equality in the covenant has grown the established Jewish tradition of arguing with God, and its close variant, confronting and even criticizing God's behavior. Abraham initiates this practice in our Parsha, but it is carried on by Moses, Jeremiah, and others in the Bible. This tradition continues in the Talmud, the medieval chronicles and laments, and down to Elie Wiesel's lifelong controversy with God over the Shoah. See, among others, Moses in Exodus 32, 11, 14, Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 and following, 
or see Lamentations chapter 3. See in the Talmud, instead of Ba'elim, who is like you among the silent, O God, instead of who is like you among the mighty, O God. That's in Gitin, Talmud 56b. And down to Elie Wiesel's lifelong controversy with God, which is expressed in Night, The Gates of the Forest, The Trial of God, and too many other sources to cite. In fact, if you're interested in this whole tradition, see Anson Leighton's book, Arguing with God, A Jewish Tradition, and Dove Weiss's book, Pious Irreverence, Confronting God and Rabbinic Tradition. Mind you the paradox. Judaism taught the world there is one cosmic God, beyond human grasp or control. Maimonides warned that since God is infinite and humans are finite, Anything we say about God is likely to be a distortion. It is based on the infinitesimal insight we are capable of into the real nature of the incommensurable God. Still, the tradition insisted that the infinite God, beyond our can or capacity to understand, who sustains the vast universe, nevertheless cares about humans. Driven by love, God seeks our relationship and our partnership in repairing creation. Although revelation is unlimited, it is cut to the measure of human capacity to understand. And so in joining humans in covenant, God further self-limits to be available, reachable, and relatable. In that relation of togetherness, rank and power fall away. In the moment the two partners speak, heart to heart. God communicates that the human standing in the divine presence is an image of God that is infinitely valuable, equal to all others, and unique. God wants humans to act accordingly. This, not simple obedience or acceptance, is what God seeks from us. Therefore, the human partner feels empowered not to acquiesce, not to speak politically correctly, not to simply go along. Abraham speaks truth and, in this case, justice to power because he was invited to do so. See Genesis 18, verse 17. Although Abraham repeatedly says he's not worthy of arguing with God, in fact, he carries on a negotiation. He repeatedly argues as the full partner he knows himself to be. Similarly, when God tells Moses of his intention to punish Israel for the sin of the golden calf, God says, quote, Now let me be, so that my anger will flare at them. I will consume them, and I will make you a great nation in their place. Exodus 32.10 Rabbinic commentators point out that the words, Let me be, are an invitation to speak up. When Moses speaks out of covenantal concern for others, out of freedom and commitment to the covenantal goals, he, the human, becomes a true partner in the decision, and the people of Israel is spared. Abraham's and Moses' arms turn out to be not too short to box with God. Human freedom, dignity, and equality reign supreme. I see this passage as the Torah's authorization for us, God's covenantal partners, in our day, to bring many religious practices up to their full stature of love, 
dignity, equality for all, as in improving the standing and treatment of women or people who are handicapped or gay or Gentiles. Ah, if only the Parsha ended right here. Parshat Vayra now turns and puts before us the most drastic contradiction to everything I wrote and said above. God, the Lord who chose Abraham because of his and God's commitment to justice and righteousness, now commands Abraham to sacrifice his innocent firstborn son of Sarah on a high mountain. Talk about splitting religion from ethics. This instruction not only goes against all the values taught in the covenant breed, it erases God's covenantal pledge to Abraham. And our hero Abraham, who three chapters earlier in Genesis stood up and spoke up to God, who negotiated as a free and equal partner to get the Sodom policy changed, he submits. He says nothing. Talk about unreasoning obedience. For three days, Abraham and Isaac go together to the fatal destination without a murmur. Talk about human value, the most devastating humiliation, robbing the parent of a shred of dignity, is to kill one's own most precious child, to be worthy of God's acceptance. <laughs> After decades of struggling with the contradiction, here is the closest approximation I have come up with to reconcile the two parts of our Parsha. Footnote here, all the other optional explanations are too many and diverse to comment on here. I do want to acknowledge David Hartman's analysis that the Torah's position is dialectical. He explores the tension of, quote, assertion versus submission in his book, The Living Covenant, Free Press, 1985, Chapter 2. So what is my reconciliation? The Akeda story is a rejection of child sacrifice. At the last minute, Abraham is told, do not lay a hand on the child, quote, and that's in Genesis 22, verse 12. But in the biblical context, child sacrifice was widely looked up to. Maimonides later wrote about sacrifices that they were so ubiquitous and entrenched that people could not conceive of serious God worship that did not incorporate sacrifices. See the Guide to the Perplexed, Part 3, Chapter 32. In Abraham's time, child sacrifice similarly was identified by many as an act of supreme religious devotion. In fact, I have sometimes wondered if that consensus did not shape or misdirect Abraham's sense that God in fact instructed him to literally sacrifice his son. See Bereshit Rabbah 56a, where the Midrash speculates that Abraham misinterpreted God's instruction. You can see Rashi's comment also on Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, which raises a similar issue. If the divine intention was to keep Judaism absolutely clear of this practice, how could this be accomplished when almost everybody believed in its efficacy? For maximum impact, the best way to demolish the credibility of the practice would be to instruct Abraham, the avatar of the new monotheistic covenant, to undertake this ritual and for three days to go through every step identical with the widespread practice. Then at the moment of climax, when everybody is watching and caught up in the familiar scenario 
then to say, no, do not do anything to the child. This reversal climax would generate the maximum cognitive dissonance to the validity of child sacrifice. It could never be denied that at the moment of truth, when the whole world agreed this was the highest form of divine worship, the voice from heaven proclaimed, absolutely not. So the Akedah is not about total submission, but about total rejection of the regnant model of sacrificing everything, including morality and deepest human feeling, at God's demand. And I should add here as a footnote, that even so, the truth of this teaching was not learned. The book of Second Kings tells how King Mesha of Moab embattled, about to lose his final redoubt to the armies of Israel, Judah and Edom, sacrificed his son, the crown prince, to Kamosh, god of Moab. This, the text tells us, unleashed a fury, and the invading armies were driven off. And Jeremiah also tells that the Israelites in his time sacrificed their sons to Baal in Gehinom, believing that they were serving the God of Israel at the highest level. Says Jeremiah, God's horrified response was that as far as child sacrifice goes, quote, I did not command this, nor did it ever come into my heart. Jeremiah 7.31 so why doesn't this interpretation satisfy my theological yearning for a God who asks for loving, free commitment, not self-denying obedience or crushing submission? The answer is, I keep wrestling with Abraham's behavior on the three-day journey. The plain story seems to me to be that he was prepared to sacrifice his one and only beloved son. With Abraham in my mind, I shudder every time we blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah and ask God to have mercy and forgive us, quote, just as a father feels mercy for his children. How could Abraham, feeling love for Isaac, keep on walking to Mount Moriah? My conclusion, if we can never accept an instruction from God that breaks our ethical conscience, that crushes our heart, then our reason and our heart is the ultimate authority. Then it is God. Then we are God, the final arbiter of right and wrong. It is this finality, this ultimate quality that I think is wrong. God wants us to exercise our freedom, reason, conscience, in matters of Torah. Over 99% of the time, we must follow our reason, and if called for, challenge God or the reigning understanding of Torah. Out of our commitment to God and conscience, we must use our best judgment and work out an interpretation of divine instruction that reconciles it with human dignity and value ethics, and that challenge it when it is off morally. But once in a lifetime, in a millennium, in an eternity, we will recognize the uncontrollable word of God that shatters our ethic or breaks our heart, yet it is the right thing to do. One can only encounter such a moment as Abraham did in direct connection with God, not through some inherited tradition or authoritative texts. Abraham knew that moment 
although the instructions contradicted everything he stood for and felt. So the Akeda teaches us that we too must be capable of the exceptional moment when all rational ethical guidelines fall away. God help us, for it would be so easy, so likely to be a moment of misjudgment, one that could well lead us to a breach of all that we know of God and what God wants of us. I remain committed to uphold conscience and to argue with God. But I acknowledge that there is a level so rarefied that there all my structures of thought fall away and my values of life are inadequate. Every year on the Shabbat of Aira and on Rosh Hashanah when we read the Akedah story, I pray with great intensity, may such a singular moment never come into my life. I don't think that I would be up to it.